Welcome to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and convention coverage, hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. Helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other listeners, find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube pages, support our Podbean crowdfunding campaign, and much more. Star Wars Action News, covering the whole galaxy of Star Wars toys. Welcome to Star Wars Action News 2016 Year in Review. This is Marjorie. This is Arnie, and we're going to be all about Rogue One today. And I'm going to just put out a spoiler alert. There will be spoilers here. (laughs) That's your spoiler alert? There will be spoilers? Yes. Okay. I figured I'd just put that warning out there. If you don't want to know that they actually do get the Death Star plans and get them to the Rebellion, you probably want to stop listening now. But you don't want to stop listening because we are joined by our own cadre of Death Troopers. Joining us is our special guest from across the pond, Steve the Ginger Prince, for his annual appearance. Greetings, this is Steve the Ginger Prince, and I am one with the Force, and the Force is one with me. And then from the other side of the pond, we have a special guest, Eddie, from Action Figure Blues, joining us. G'day, mates. Happy to be here. Then on the domestic side, we have Brock. Hey, everybody, it's Brock, Star Wars Action News Book Club liaison. Happy to be here. Daryl. Hey, everybody, I'm here because Cassian told me to. (laughs) And you'll leave us all if we're not back in time? Only in the dead of space. Jerry. Hey, guys, Jerry here. Andrew. Hey, everybody, tis the season to find out whether or not all the hot toys I pre-ordered were worth it. The suspense is killing me. And then in sunny Florida, Chris. How's it going, everybody? Glad to be here. And Sarah. Hi, everyone. How's it going? So at this point, all of us have seen Rogue One, and we're just going to kind of go through in that same order and get your high-level impressions. And Marjorie, we'll start with you. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I kind of had a hard time with it the first time because I I felt like the beginning just was really slow and way too much that I had to remember who was who, and then you had two guys with mustaches and little goatees, and which one was which, because they both had heavy accents, and they kind of looked alike, slightly. And then I kind of thought it picked up a little, and then he got to the end, and I'm like, okay, that makes sense. The end perfectly made sense. I have to say that my favorite character, and and so far I think this is everyone's favorite character, K2SO, he totally stole the show. And he was amazing, he was funny, and I'm really sad that he died because it, it almost brought a tear to my eye because he was human. He was like Chappie, if you've ever seen that movie. That's what he reminded me of. Went and watched it again the next day. And, you know, it's not a bad movie, but I don't think it's a great movie. I, I didn't get, I guess, the suspense wasn't there that they weren't going to get the Death Star plans because I knew they were going to get the Death Star plans. I, I knew that was going to happen. So there really wasn't any suspense there. And it was not shocking to me that they all died, to be honest, because we never see these people ever again. Their names were never brought up, which I guess they could rewrite everything with books. But we never saw them in the original trilogy, so it doesn't make sense for them to live, and then we could just wonder what the hell happened to them. Steve, 
How about you? Um, like your good lady wife, I've seen it twice. Um, and I think on first viewing, I gave it an eight and a half out of 10. But on second viewing, I've come down to more of an eight out of 10. Um, so it lost a little bit on second viewing for me. Um, again, I agree with Marjorie that it was a, a very, very slow build. Um, but it picked up and picked up. And the last half hour um, really did it for me, really enjoyed the last half hour. Um, I think when I was talking to people, because, of course, I go into work the next day and everyone wants to know my opinion, is it, it, my I was very much thinking that it, it it's definitely a Star Wars film, but then it's not a Star Wars film in, in other regards. They've done enough to make it different and a, and a standalone while still retaining, you, you know, a lot of the... Uh, traditional Star Wars feels, etc. Um, but but I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it, it, it very much so. But hmm, it it's slightly better than the the Force Awakens for me. Maybe fractionally just better than the the Force Awakens. Um, and I don't think we could have hoped for much more. It could have been uh, it it could have been worse. It had some really great bits in it. Some bits that that made me go wow um for example I, I don't know what all your opinions are, are are on the sort of special effects but the i nearly um fell off my seat when tarkin turned round and god they can bring anyone back from the dead can't they um but then it, it, in equal amount i mean i i, I love i love the, the tarkin but in equal amount it had a lot of disappointments as well and i can talk more in in detail about what those were later on yeah, we'll talk about Grand Moff CGI, but... You know, Steve, I died three years ago. Uh, Arnie keeps bringing me back every year for book reviews. Eddie, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit by saying I've seen it three times now. Uh, and I was actually the opposite to Steve. I went in with low expectations. Liked it well enough the first time, but uh, on my second and third viewing, actually, I found myself enjoying it a fair bit more. Uh, one of the few things I didn't enjoy, though, was uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, which um, I'm sure we'll get to. But he was one of the things that definitely improved for me on multiple multiple viewings uh, of the film. But uh, I'm a big fan of sort of espionage and war tactics, and this one film sort of hit uh, some very nice uh, uh, happy points for me uh, with a bit of a different feel and also seeing local boy uh, Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, I loved his performance as director Krennic, so there was a uh, bit of nice local touch in my theatre too. I've never seen a nation with such pride in their actors as Aussies. Wait a second, Ireland, because they're all over their airport. That's true, that's true. <laughs> Brock, what were your thoughts of the film? Uh, you know, I've been reading Star Wars books for 25 years, and Rogue One is a great example of a Star Wars EU when it can be great. This is a good example of a good Star Wars EU novel. It connects to the Star Wars we know. It has its own characters. It brings in characters that uh, are in the movies and things but are not necessarily going to uh, destroy any continuity or too much continuity from the movies we know. They give you moments that are like wonderful connection and they give you some eye rolling moments like self-indulgent kind of things. And I know we're going to talk about a couple of those. So overall, I was very happy with Rogue One because this is, you know, for all these years we're talking about you know, all these great books that you can put on screen. Well, here's a good example of what you could do now that they did this. They can put that Kenobi book on the screen because all bets are off. 
Uh, I thought the ending was exactly what I wanted, exactly ended exactly where I wanted it. Um, I do typically enjoy Ben Mendelsohn, um, but I got to tell you, that villain character of of Krennic, we'll talk about him later, but I was not impressed by Krennic at all. So a lot of great nods to us big fans of Star Wars, a lot of um, happy moments for me, the EU fan, and overall, I liked Rogue One more than I thought I was going to. Darrow. Well, I went in with uh, very high expectations for this film. Uh, I tried not to be, you know, um, as hyped for it as I ended up being um, because of the time frame it was set in and everything. But it, I will say it definitely lived up to the hype for me. Uh, I've seen it four times now. Um, just kind of happened upon a, an extra showing that I went to. Um, it, it is same thing. I, I enjoy the espionage. I enjoy, you know, kind of that that band of brothers, kind of that Magnificent Seven type setting that they went with, uh, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, kind of everybody has their own special area that they're they're good in, and, and it worked out well for this film. And I think overall, um, quite happy with the end product. Jerry? You know, I absolutely loved the movie. I really did. I watched it twice so far, both in 3D, and I literally, I sat down and, as I was putting together notes for this, I, I really only had two criticisms of the movie. One of which I think I, I was able to just write off after the second viewing saying to myself that, okay, you know what? I understand a little bit better of why that occurred in the movie. I'm sure there are plot points we'll get into separately, but overall I was very excited about this movie kind of going into it. I didn't really get hyped about it per se, but I was more interested in seeing this one than i was force awakens and, I, and i'd say right now this is probably the best movie since the original trilogy i think this is hands down better than any of the prequels way better in my opinion than the force awakens if you remember i was probably lukewarm on that one and it it's familiar safe territory for a guy like me it's a it's an ot story it's leading right into a new hope and i think they did a great job with it andrew yeah, it's definitely a, a different type of Star Wars movie. Um, and, you know, I, I was one of those that was really not too excited by this movie until right before it came out. I think it was the, the last trailer that finally got me excited for it. But going in to see it, it was a totally different experience. You know, I, I went to the same time of showing that I went to for The Force Awakens. Um Last year, I was, I don't know, maybe 20th in line. This year, at the same time before the show, I was third in line. Uh, so it was a really kind of a different feeling right from the get-go when we got to the to the theater. Uh, and the movie itself didn't really um, click for me until uh, after they got off Jedi. I felt like once the, the team was fully assembled, it really kind of hit its stride at that point. Uh, the acting was was solid across the board. I really liked uh, all the the prequel nods that they had into it. Uh, that was that was nice to see that you know while they have been focusing more on original trilogy era stuff that Lucasfilm is still um, feeding in little nods to the prequels. Um, overall, when when I left, uh, I. I thought that I liked it more than, than uh, my initial reaction to the force awakens. Uh, the second time I went and saw it uh, the next day, uh, I walked out liking it even more. So I guess I'd have to say that I like it more than I liked uh, the force awakens on initial viewing. Uh, however, 
I have a problem with with uh, comparing it because it is so different. But overall, yeah, solid movie. Chris. So as of this recording, we've seen it twice. Um, the first time, I echo what a lot of you have said. I thought it was a little slow to get going. Uh, but once it did, it really took off for me. Uh, what I found is I enjoyed it even more the second time around. It wasn't without some some issues, though, and we'll get into those. But I think for me, I didn't think I was going to miss the crawl. And when the movie started, it just was like, boom, all of a sudden I realized, wow, I really did miss the crawl. Um, so that kind of, you know, right off the gate hit. But, you know, um, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. So we move forward. But there were some nice little nods in there. I mean, uh, Andrew was talking about the prequel nods. I like the nods to Rebels. And I know there's some OT nods in there as well. I thought that the nods were done better than The Force Awakens. I thought J.J., you know, was very in your face with them, and they were a little more subtle here. Um, I think overall The Force Awakens is a more fun film, but to me this is a better Star Wars movie. And for me, I, you know, it does rank above The Force Awakens. Sarah? I, I too, like the movie. I I did think it was a bit slow to start, uh, but once things got moving, um, I found it a little bit more enjoyable and I was able to get into it. When I kind of was disappointed with was the very beginning with um urso and his character and wanting to know well what happened between him and krennic that made him you know run off and have a family and go into hiding um i would have liked some more background on that even if it was just a quick blurb and then we flash forward you know five six years when jen's a little girl and then also what was the story behind jen and saw because it was so quick you just don't understand you know, obviously he raised her. Well, what happened? Why did she disappear? Why did she get into so much trouble? Where was he? What was going on? Um, so those are some things that were left me wondering uh, throughout the movie, trying to, you know, fill in some blanks, but I wasn't able to. I, too, missed the crawl. I didn't think I would, but I actually did. It was very in-your-face when it started, you know, so abruptly with a planet and, like, a big bang. But overall, I think it was good. Um, I enjoyed the nods, and I like the fact they kind of filled in some missing pieces. Well, I think Brock can probably speak to those things you want because they were all in the Catalyst book, weren't they? Uh, Many of them were in the Catalyst book. They didn't go into a lot of how Saw brought Jin up, but they absolutely went into exhaustive detail on the relationship between Galen Erso and Krennic and why Krennic finds him at the beginning of this movie. But you know, uh, one, one thing I'll say, Sarah, what you just described and what Brock just said, I think, could have been the opening crawl. I mean, they, they could have went into, in that crawl, what Galen did with the Empire before he went to exile, and then, boom, pick up the movie. I, I'm not sure that that wouldn't have been difficult. But for me, it's important they don't have a crawl. I I really missed the crawl. It, it, it was really weird the first 10 minutes because of its absence, but... These have to stand out and be separate from the, you know, the the main saga. So I think it's important they don't have a crawl. Um, it, 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 as weird as it felt, not having one, I think it is important. And and again, for me, that's why I I am going to refuse to rank these films in amongst the saga because they're not part of the saga. So I, I know I said I, I think it's slightly better than the Force Awakens, but I'm refusing to actually rank this film along with the others. I didn't miss the crawl as much as I missed the Star Wars bursting to the screen and going fading into black. I would have yeah. been much happier with Star Wars and skipping the crawl, but they didn't even put a Star Wars up there. But what you know, I think we had the crawl missing, but that plus the absence of the Star Wars music and the Star Wars logo 
made it feel totally not like a Star Wars movie whatsoever. I'll agree with what Sarah said. When you see that planet and then that huge, horrible, atonal music sting, I thought the Cloverfield monster was coming. I didn't think I was in a Star Wars movie. (laughs) Was that a jump scare for anyone else's cinema? My pack cinema leaped out of their seats with that music cue. If we're going on to music already, can I get my uh, my thoughts in early? Um, I've, heard, I've I've read a lot on, on Twitter of people praising the soundtrack. I, I thought the soundtrack was one of the weakest parts of this film. Um, I thought it was all over the place. It didn't have any sort of constant theme. It it was it, there were there was prequel bits. There were there were OT bits. There were there were bits from Rebels. It uh, but he never really committed to going with one theme or the other. It was like he just looked at the whole Star Wars canon of music and, and just picked bits from here, there, and everywhere. And it ended up being this really um, uh, spasmodic, random sort of affair. You guys have seen the movie more times than I have uh, combined. Uh, what John Williams did a lot of times was that he made themes for individual characters or individual scenes, as we all know. So if seeing on repeat viewings, did you guys notice any like particular kind of theme that would come up, like, for example, Ray's theme or the asteroid chase? Did you notice anything that stands out? Because I didn't on my viewing, but I'm hoping that something is there like that, that he took those kind of cues from John Williams and even, even, a, little, even, even a little bit. The only one that I noticed was Krennic seemed to have a theme. Every time that his ship showed up on screen, it had a very bombastic sounding uh, theme that reminded me a lot of Kylo Ren's theme, actually. But really, that was about it. Having listened to the soundtrack from Amazon, it actually is the exact opposite. It's like he's trying not to have a theme. I think he does a fine job of aping Williams scene to scene, but he doesn't have that entire holistic view where he's going to bring these things back and have the music be what carries the film. I mean, Lucas has said the original Star Wars was a silent picture with John Williams' score, and then they added words, but it could have carried as a silent picture. This movie could not work on that level. Plus, you got to keep in mind, too, he was brought in late, so he only had, like, two months to compose, orchestrate, and conduct it. So, you know, he was under the gun. I'm not trying to give the man excuses, but I think he that could explain some of the uh, lackluster as far as it com- goes with, uh, with the themes. Plus, the dude's the new Danny Elfman. I mean, he scored Star Trek. Every movie I go to, I see his name in the opening credits, and I'm like, why? Is he cheap? I don't understand. <laughs> No, I was going to say that I think the um, composer for this did a good job. It's true to his nature and how he sees the films and what he wants to bring to it. We have to remember that John Williams isn't going to be around forever. They have to start finding other conductors. John Williams did a fantastic job in the way he saw fit and with what he was working with. And now these are new movies and it's a new conductor. And we just have to accept that it's going to go in a new direction. It's not going to be a John Williams masterpiece. Well, I, I think it's a good point, though, Sarah, because, uh, you know, they they gave Gareth Edwards the job and they said, you know, make this your own thing. We want this to be different. So it kind of makes sense that the soundtrack would kind of follow suit and be a little different. The other thing I'll, I'll mention with the, the music, though, I mean, let's let's be honest here. The Force Awakens wasn't John Williams best work either. I thought that he was, you know, a little off in that movie. The best thing I can say about the music here is that it didn't take me out of the movie, um, but it also didn't impact the way I'm viewing the movie. Whereas when you watch the other movies, the music definitely plays a part of it. 
I totally agree that The Force Awakens wasn't Williams's best music, but if you take a piece of music like Ray's theme, that is an outstanding piece of music for me, and that you know that theme alone made the soundtrack. Whereas this doesn't have any outstanding themes, it just borrows from the existing Star Wars music canon in this really random way. Um, and, and, and for me, it's one of the, the weakest parts of the, the movie. Star Wars is about the music. The music is is a large part of what made Star Wars successful. And they're going to have to get a stronger composer on board um, because for me, Giacchino is just not going to cut it. Star Wars Rebels cartoon is has its own composer as well. And they hearken back to classic Williams, but they have their own style as well. Even that guy understands what Star Wars music can be about. I'm saying it's that guy. Who knows? It could be a, fa- a hundred guys. I don't know how many guys do the Rebels score, but the score for Rebels proves that you don't need Williams to have a Star Wars feel to the music. And they do that, what, how many shows they've done already? So you can do it. I also like the fugue for X-Wings in The Force Awakens. Just want to throw that out there. And there wasn't even one of those in the battle scenes that um, that helped background, uh, give background tones uh, that really helped sweep the music along in those battle scenes. Let's move on from the music and look at the characters. The new lead female we have is, of course, Ray. I'm sorry, Jin, the orphan single girl who was raised on her own and then gets swept up by a resistance or a rebellion. How do you guys feel she did as the lead of this new Star Wars story? I'm going to sound like the negative person early doors here, but I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy her performance either. Um, I, I, I thought, in fact, I, both, I thought both her and Diego Luna were, weren't really that strong lead characters. I think the real strong performances came from the, the supporting cast, uh, Alan Tudyk, um, Jang Wen, um, uh, Donnie Yen. Uh, I, th- I think these were the stronger performances rather than the main two characters. I was actually quite disappointed um Felicity uh, Felicity Jones is she called she ain't no Daisy Ridley um considering her acting background I thought Daisy Ridley uh, outacted her by a factor of at least 10. I had no issue with uh, Felicity's performance but um I did find that her character did get sort of swept to the background with uh, a lot of the other characters uh, running around on the team and her support team, she just became uh, sort of the movement vehicle for the plot, but didn't get a lot of character moments in the final product. But I do feel there were hints of more from the original film that got uh, removed in a lot of the heavy editing. Um, as we sort of saw in the trailer, there seemed to be a lot more going on with her. I thought that she was really weak, and I don't think anybody was really developed, but. She wasn't particularly strong, nor was she B.A. I, I don't know that she's really a great actress, to be honest, because she seemed to just kind of stare at the camera a lot, try to emote, but it didn't really work. I agree with Diego Luna. He was not very good either. And it just, I don't know, something about him just did not work. And I couldn't tell if they were supposed to be in love or have an attraction towards each other. I, I kind of felt that I missed it because of the end scene where they're hugging. But I felt there was a stronger attraction between the blind Jedi and his friend. I don't know if they were together, but I like to think that maybe they were a couple because I think they had a stronger attraction. I think that both of them were fine. I I actually liked both of them very fine. I was kind of used to these kinds of characters not being too developed 
because I knew they were going to die at the end. Like, if you read Star Wars EU books, you get this kind of character development. You get, like, and, and sometimes I complain about it, that there's not enough. Uh, I do think she did what she could with what she was given. I do think some editing issues happened with her character as well, because the connection between her and her father, uh, especially reading the book ahead of time, you would think that's going to be a much bigger part of the movie. You saw the preview for it, this movie, you think that's going to be a major thing in this movie, and it really, once all the characters came together and the band came together, that whole thing was swept under the rug. Uh, so honestly, I think it was more about being underwritten. I've, I've seen Felicity Jones and other things, The Theory of Everything, for example. She was Oscar nominated for that, I think, last year, maybe the year before, and she was great in that. Uh, Diego Luna is a good actor. I think both of them just got, um, unfortunately, got an underwritten roles, and they didn't either have much to do or did the best they could. I actually liked him better than I liked her because he was given some stuff to do. Uh, but I, I think, uh, I don't know, I think it has to be a little hard on her. Yes, I do agree, though. She is no Ray. I think all of us really bonded to Ray. Think of what you want about The Force Awakens. A lot of us bonded to Ray much stronger than we're going to bond to this character of Jin. But then again, we all know she wasn't, I mean, most of us, I would assume, knew she wasn't going to survive this. So it's hard to get attached to somebody that way if you know she's not going to live. And it's going to be impossible to not compare her with Ray, but they, I think that the reason that everybody felt more attached to Ray is because that's what her character was. Like she was supposed to be the sweet, nice, quirky girl, as opposed to Jin, who's supposed to be the opposite of that. I don't think we're really supposed to like her in the same way, which, you know, whether that's, good or bad for the movie. I don't know, but I, I think that they're two completely different characters and that that's why a lot of people aren't quite getting attached to Jin like they did with Daisy Ridley's Ray. Uh, I think that her acting was, was fine. Um, I think that her and Diego Luna um, were better together than they ever were apart. Um, the scene that I keep going back to is the one where they're arguing with each other on the ship. I thought that there was a lot of really good energy in that scene. Uh, but when, when they aren't together and they aren't being angsty, uh, their, their performances, I think were, a, could have been seen as a, being a little flat, but I think that's more of the material and the script than it was the, the performances. They just didn't have a lot to do. And that's kind of a problem you get with ensemble pieces. You don't have time to spend with the, uh, with the individual characters, they have to really make an impression right off the bat. And, and I'm not sure that they really succeeded in that in this film. Yeah. I definitely needed her character to be a little more fleshed out into why she was rebelling against, you know, everyone, why she was, you know, kind of in prison at the beginning and stuff. Um, you know, maybe that comes in and catalyst. I don't know, but for the story that we're, that we're seeing on the screen, uh, you know, we need that. Why she is a rebel. We got that in the, uh, trailer for it you know this is a rebellion i rebel and then they don't even use that part in the movie you know why is she against saw i mean they go into that a little bit when she talks to him but we just need more from her character background wise to why she is put in this position over anyone else uh diego he did all right for me kind of the same thing that they were better together than they were apart. Uh, they kind of tried to show him as being somewhat ruthless with that scene at the beginning when he, he shoots the, uh, the other spy, uh, the informant for him. 
But then when he goes to kill Galen or whatever with the sniper rifle, you know, he has a change of heart, but doesn't really come out as a change of heart. He just kind of stalls. And so I'd never got, you know, why he was changing it. Did he have a true change of heart? Was it something he saw in Jen? Was it, you know, where was that coming from? So overall, they did decent together. Everyone else seemed to do decent together, but there were some backstory areas that could have been flushed out a little bit more. Backstory? How about current story? I mean, I know that this movie underwent some reshoots and some redos, but can you tell me why anything happens? Why is Jin initially in prison? Yes, they list her crimes, but why is she a criminal? Why does she decide, yes, I'm going to be a champion of the rebellion after the rebellion kills my father with one of their dropped bombs? There's a lot of plot conveniences. One of you mentioned the scene on the ship where Jin and... Cassian are arguing, and I'll agree, that's a well-acted scene that goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah, for, for me, you know, I'm going to echo what a lot of you have said. I think they were stronger together, but uh, for me, I actually liked Felicity a little bit better than Diego. He was the, the weaker one for me. I actually found that I was more drawn to the other characters, uh, especially for me, Chirrut Imwi. He was my favorite character with, with K2SO being a, a close second. Um, I thought they actually had better moments. They had better dialogue. Um, and so I was more drawn to that. I will say also, because we really haven't touched on it too much, is I think Forrest Whitaker is wasted here. I mean, we barely get any time with his character. And I think I'm, I'm curious to know what ended up on the cutting floor with Saw, because they made such a big deal about Forrest Whitaker being in this movie, and we get, like, no time with him at all. Thank you for bringing him up, Chris. I, again, I'm going to sound like the ne- the negative ninny here. I, honestly, I did quite like this film, and I have lots of positive stuff to say about it. But I thought Forrest Whitaker was the weakest link. I thought he was awful. I think he ended up on the cutting room floor because of his overacting. Um, I don't know what all your thoughts are about that, but honestly, he was the the low point, even lower than the soundtrack. I think I'm here to be devil's advocate because um, I much to the disappointment of K2SO fans, my favourite character actually was uh, Cassian Andor, and I really loved uh, Diego's sort of subtle performances. One of my favourite pieces in the film uh, was very early on when you're first introduced to him and he shoots the rebel soldier from the back. And just the couple of seconds after that happens, the look on his face where it wasn't a cold-blooded killing, he was doing it to save the guy from... Uh, the Imperial soldiers that were coming down the alleyway and he takes a second to reflect on what he's done and potentially whether he should just put a bullet in himself and then decides to carry on with the mission and head up. And that for me, I love because that told me everything I wanted to know about that character in that couple of seconds moving forward. And that helped me justify why he had issues later on uh, killing Galen and with uh saw i actually really loved uh forrest whitaker's performance he was almost a rebel version of darth vader having sort of those breathing issues uh robotic body and he was playing it very much like a marlon brando in apocalypse now a guy who's been at war for years gone a bit crazy the only thing i didn't like which i think might have been alluded to in his performance is that weird bangala creature that he uses on Bodhi. And I think there's meant to be hints that he might have used that creature on himself at one point, and that sort of sent him over the edge because him and Bodhi have a very similar talking style. 
after that point where they're sort of talking through the breath coming out. Um, that's uh, while I like that choice as an actor, it just having it come from a weird mind reading creature uh, was sort of the only thing I didn't like about Saw. Eddie, I got to say one thing. I mean, I, I will take Cassian and Jin over Finn and Ray any day of the week. I mean, you guys, uh, I, it's, it's blowing my mind that we're, I think we're way overselling Ray here. Cause I mean, she probably had more energy in her performance than uh, Felicity did, but part of it is I think just the characters are playing. I mean, Jin was so, or I'm sorry, uh, Ray was so fun to follow along because she's the uh, wide eyed, hopeful, wanting to do this, that, and the other, just learn that she can be a Jedi. And there's just so, we're seeing the movie all from her perspective. Whereas this movie we're seeing from the whole group's perspective. We're not getting too invested in any of them because yeah, they're going to be kind of one and done characters. So we have a little backstory about why things are happening. And, but I love, I love the two of them, uh, to, uh, not just even together, but I mean, just the two characters, uh, I enjoyed them both a lot. And I really liked what they did in this movie. And, um, Cassian in particular, I really, really loved him in this movie in the sense that, wow, there's kind of a unique character we've not seen yet. You know, he's not Han Solo. He's not Luke Skywalker. He is this rebel spy assassin, whatever you want to call him. He's the intelligence officer that has to make the tough choices that, you know, Han Solo don't, doesn't have to doesn't have to make. You know, he's he can just, you know, get mad at the Death Star, get in the ship with uh, Chewie and take off. You know, he's not committed to this cause. I'm talking early Han Solo, of course, you know, quite like uh, uh, Cassian is. So I like the, 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 the viewpoint of a guy who's hardcore rebel. And I thought it played off really well. And what I what I said earlier in my introduction, the one thing that I wrote down in my notes of like I don't know why this was here, this needed to be cut, was that monster going around the Imperial pilot. I mean that there was that should have been cut. You could have changed one or two lines of dialogue and just had moved on. That that to me had zero payoff. I think the great thing about the Daniel Lugo's character character is that we're actually seeing the realities of what a rebellion actually is. I think this whole movie shows us what the rebellion is and what it actually means to be in rebellion. Yep. And I love that about this movie, and I love that about that character. Um, but with Ray, I think Jerry nailed it, that we're taking the journey with her, and with Felicity Jones's Jin, we're not taking really the journey with her at all. I felt more like we're taking the journey with, with the team. And again, it's right out of an EU novel, guys. I mean, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but this is exactly what we read in these kind of books. And it's really kind of nice that uh, we see this band comes together kind of like a Michael Crichton novel. You know, they always put these different people together to get this job done and it comes together at the end very well. And so I, I think all the pieces and parts with these ill-defined characters come together uh, to work. Uh, but yes, everything we're saying about individual characters pretty much is dead on. I actually did want to say that I did like Forrest Whitaker's take uh, a little more than some of you. Uh, I, I also believe that we have a tradition of having these Oscar-winning or Oscar-nominated actors have very bit parts. Max von Sydow comes to mind in The Force Awakens. Uh, he just has a little bit thing and he's gone too. So why is Forrest Whitaker getting <laughs> a short shrift here? I, I thought he did pretty well and he actually had more character stuff to do than say a Max von Sydow did in his role. My biggest problem with Saw was his ending. Um, you know, he just gave up and he's supposed to be this supreme, you know, rebellious leader that has, has had these, you know, rebels at his side all this time and kind of splintered off because they weren't rebellious enough. And they didn't really explain, you know, yes, I can 
flesh it out in my mind that, you know, he's tired of running and stuff, but just, you know, say that I'm tired of running. I I've done enough. Instead, he just kind of says, take Jen and then stands there and lets the rock crush him. So that was my biggest problem with his character. Oh, with those metal legs, he wasn't getting out of there. Don't you think that he was handing it off to the girl he raised? Now his prodigy, his prodigy is now taking where he was, and that's why he's able to stay? He has no reason to think that, because she's completely denied any cause. She's like, I don't look up, so I don't see the flag over my head. That- he saw he saw the emotion change in her when she watched that video, though. That all, that all changed for her when she realized what Galen had done. Hmm. I just also took it as he literally couldn't run like he wasn't out in the city fighting with uh, the other partisans or that he was at that stage he said there wasn't much of him left he was just basically stuck there as a directing general but not uh, active anymore so uh, like someone said he just couldn't literally run out the door he's a little rascal you know like one of those things that people at Disney World ride around in if Dr. Evazan and Ponder Baba can get off the planet so can he (laughs) For any of you that are really into the animated series, Clone Wars and Rebels, did having this be Saw Gerrera from that season five arc of Clone Wars add anything? Because I went back and rewatched that arc. I don't see any advantage of it being him versus nameless new character to the movie X. The only thing that it really, I mean, added, probably not, but it uh, kind of, uh, filled in some of his history, right? So they didn't have to go into, oh, he's been fighting, you know, all these wars since the Clone Wars, and you know, he's he's lost a lot of people, including his sister and all that. I, you know, so in the back of my mind, it probably helped my experience a little bit, just because I knew, oh, he's been fighting this since before the rebellion even started. Uh, but to the general casual audience member who hasn't seen Clone Wars. Uh, I don't think that they would miss it. I thought it would have been more just because he was a Lucas-created character for that uh, Underworld TV show originally. I believe that they were going to play it off more as, hey, we have a Lucas-created character in sort of the marketing and PR, which never actually came up too much. Yeah, and he's going to be in the second half of the current season of Rebels too, so that'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And yes, Walrus Man and Dr. Evazan. Too much fan service or really cool to see? I mean, I'll admit, I was happy to see them. And then, logically, I tried to fit the timeline after the fact, and I had a little trouble there. But I liked seeing them. You did the same I did, because I did the same thing. I'm like, I liked it, and then I'm like, wait a minute here. That's that's kind of a tight timeline for them. Um for me, actually, I know I said that I liked the nods. This was the most in your face of all the nods, at least for me. No, like the R two and three PO was more in the face than than this. I think. Well, uh, but they I mean, could have they, they could have been on Yavin four. That actually makes sense that they would have been on Yavin four. It to me, it didn't make sense that that Doctor Evzion and and Ponda Baba would be on Jetta. Oh, but that See? but that that was just a joke, though. I mean, that was Evzion saying the exact same lines he said. I don't know if it was word for word, but that. That's just what you expect him to say if he ran and bumped into somebody else, picking on a little girl, just like he was picking on a little, a little, uh, uh, you know, adolescent boy or whatever, a nineteen-year-old, whoever Luke was. You know, that's just him being a bully, and that was just a nod, just a, just a little funny. I chuckled and said, "Oh, that's that. That was kind of cool, but it meant nothing to the movie, no." And as soon as Jetta gets blown up, they're, I mean, they're running, they get on ship, they go right to Tatooine. 
Time yeah, I had, perfect sense. I had to agree. I, I thought this was a joke, and I didn't really think about that timeline. The 3PO and R2 thing drove me batty. Because 3PO and R2 wouldn't have been on Yavin 4. They were under the control of Captain Antilles. That's where we left them off in Revenge of the Sith. When they were on the Clone Wars, I'm sorry, the Rebels cartoon, they mentioned how they were on loan, right? And then uh, at the beginning of the next movie, they're on the ship. And so how did they get from Yavin 4 on the Princess well, Leia's ship? You know, this movie, that's the whole thing was driving but me Bale, crazy. But Bale was there. But Bale, Bale wasn't on that ship. Bale they, went to Alderaan. They're but, getting... Sent to Scarif on the ship. That's what C-3P's lines about is, uh, wait, we're going to Scarif? Why does no one tell me these things? So they're being put on the blockade runner and heading to Scarif, and then it's from Scarif that they head off and start a new hope. Bale shouts at Captain Antilles and gives him some directions. So he's, uh, you know, putting him on the ship and in the air. So it, it does sort of make sense. There's a little radio drama here where Bale says that, hey, the Tantive IV is... Only the royal house of Alderaan can ride on it. I will take the plans, and Leia's like, no, no, let me do it. So I kind of gathered that Bale rode on that ship all the time. What I don't quite connect is, would that ship have been there at that moment? Did Leia get the plans and take off immediately for Tatooine? Which I kind of think, yes, because Bale's already talking about uh, finding uh, Kenobi. But then I didn't quite get that 3PO and... R2 are necessarily getting ready to board a ship. But I guess, Chris, I think it was you that said the way he said the line, we're going to Scarif. I, I actually interpreted that as just the rebellion as a whole, not necessarily those two. But they almost had to have. Well, that's where I have my problem with most of these little cameos is that I feel like they linger on a um, close-up a little too long where the characters aren't doing anything. Like, I actually liked uh, Dr. Evison and Punda Baba, but... They cut back to another close-up right after the little moment's done, and that's where you sort of get a good look at them and see it's sort of a guy in just a really good cosplay outfit. And then with C-3PO and R2, they sort of linger on them a little bit too longer rather than having them starting to walk off or move, and particularly Tarkin, they do a couple of too many close-ups where they really get into the uncanny valley, and that's... I just wish they had a, just a tiny bit more restraint with some of these uh, nods and cameos. The thing this movie did for me, and it's the same thing as the prequels, is it makes me rethink my assumptions. Because when you see Leia's ship running from the Star Destroyer at the beginning of Star Wars, the plans were beamed to them. I never thought that happened in the middle of a major battle. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me that Princess Leia was sitting in the belly of that warship waiting to be handed a flash drive so that she could take off and race to Tatooine putting the princess who the whole deal was she was on a diplomatic mission and this and that what kind of diplomacy is there being above Scarif where they see you take off so kind of like me thinking Yoda trained Obi-Wan because Obi-Wan said was I any different when you instructed me in an empire it's just retconning and changing. But I do want to get into the CGI abominations of the film. I found these things abhorrent and just eerie. I've seen a lot of horror movies this year, but nothing's as scary as that Tarkin. <laughs> How wrong can you be, Arnie? These are amongst the best bits of the film. I, I, I found the Tarkin an absolute 
revelation. For, I agree. For me, when he turned around, I nearly fell off my chair. So I, did I. I, I he was frightening and completely inhuman. No, I nearly <laughs> fell off my chair in delight. I wasn't expecting to see Tarkin, even though he's integrally wound up with the Death Star. But for for me, it it was almost flawless. The the CGI and and of course they're not they're not going to quite capture it. it for a time, the face didn't look quite right, but it wasn't Uncanny Valley. It was it, Uncanny Valley is something like the Polar Express, where it's absolutely horrible. Yes, this was just like the Polar Express. No, 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 no. This was the closest thing to having Peter Cushing back in the flesh. And for me, Mendo was a real disappointment. Uh, Krennic, he was a really disappointing character. But the fact that Tarkin was there to put him put him in his place and, and absolutely bossed the film for, it w- w- was absolutely superb I, I don't understand anyone who's saying that those cgi effects weren't good for me this is oscar winning material you know in action films when they jump across a cliff and they don't quite make it to the other edge but they grab like a piece of root or plant coming out the other side and are just grasping on and haven't fallen in that was the level of uncanny valley for me uh, in this movie, it was there, but they almost made the landing and there were just a couple of little bits that kept pulling me out. And for me, it was just whenever they went to close-ups on them, uh, it fell down for me. But in a lot of the uh, wider shots or shots with multiple people there in the room and the character was slightly more to the back, um, I was fine. It was just there was a particular Tarkin shot where they just linger on him to give a grin and turn around and it, that's... The head was sort of having a bobble effect on the actor who would have been there uh, providing the body. And just little bits like that, just as well done as it was, it just still pulled me out of the film in knowing like, okay, this isn't the actor here. But as I saw it a couple more times, it did sit much more easier with me with each viewing. And I think particularly once we get it on Blu-ray and we're watching it on a much smaller screen uh, in our home units, and hopefully they get a chance to tinker around with it a little bit more in the effects studio. I'm hoping by the time we have it on Blu-ray, it's going to be uh, much better and hold up much better. You know, I was thinking about Tron Legacy, Arnie, when we reviewed that for Now Playing and how we talked about Jeff Bridges. Young Jeff Bridges didn't quite work, you know. And watching this, Tarkin, I'd say it's like 95% there. It worked for me a lot. There were a couple of moments that it did look a little wonky, but overall it really worked well for me. I was hoping they were going to recast the character. So my biggest issue with the villains is I wanted Tarkin to be the main villain of the movie because and recast him. If you're going to have him be the Krennic character instead of Krennic, then have a, re- a guy redo the character, you know, because they recast Mon Mothman, they recast uh, Dodonna. Basically, I thought Krennic was a big disappointment as well. Even reading the book ahead of time, I called it out in my review of Catalyst, and you can listen to my review on YouTube or on Star Wars Action News, that the character is useless. You have Tarkin, who is basically, and in the book, Krennic is written very close to what Tarkin is. And in this movie, all of Krennic's scenes honestly can be Tarkin. You don't actually need that scene with Darth Vader. We'll get to that later on on his planet. But honestly, Krennic is wasted. And you have Tarkin taking over at the end from Krennic. But honestly, Krennic does nothing in this movie that Tarkin couldn't do. If you have Tarkin in the beginning capturing Urso, and you skip the whole thing about Tarkin or or Krennic being on the planet where the plans are getting stolen at the same time, you don't need the Krennic character in this movie at all. And I like that actor a lot, but I found this villain completely a big waste of time. And I really enjoyed the bits we got of Tarkin. And I think you didn't really need a big villain like a Krennic in this movie at all because what the characters are doing the rebels are doing is more than enough to get the plot moving you don't need a villain character running around trying to stop them 
I don't really feel like Krennic is the villain of the movie, though. I feel like more like like time and the Death Star itself is more the villain because yeah, Krennic doesn't really do anything. He doesn't ever like slow down the rebels. He doesn't ever stop the rebels. Uh, he never gets in their way really, so to speak. Um, and, and Tarkin really doesn't do anything. Uh, you know, Vader, you know, is always going to be a villain, but I don't think he's the villain of the piece. I think it's more time, the urgency and the fact that this, giant battle station is going to start blowing up planets if they don't stop it. Krennic's, Krennic's a villain. He's definitely a villain. I mean, he shoots uh, Galen's wife. He kills five scientists. He, he's a villain, and I thought he was going to be the big bad villain. I wasn't expecting to see Tarkin in this film. Um, but I absolutely love the fact that Tarkin just renders him into this whining little so-and-so um, you know, he basically steals the Death Star project right off him. Krennic, it, it, Krennic is responsible for the Death Star. It, there's no doubt about that. Is it? He's the he's the Imperial who manipulated the scientists to make this thing. But I love the fact that Tarkin steals it off him, and I love the fact that that Tarkin, in the wider scale of things, is obviously closer to the Emperor than than Vader is. Um, it's, Tarkin is such a, a big big character and I, and I love the fact that Krennic was made to be really insignificant and really small in comparison you get this impression with Krennic and with Tarkin as well that there's some type of history there just by some of the exchanges that they have and you also get that they're both jockeying politically within the empire to try and have positions of power but you're right Krennic is a villain Steve I agree with Steve on that one uh, he does take out the scientist he is pretty ruthless when push comes to shove. And, I mean, he even goes to Mustafar to appeal to Vader to talk to the Emperor on his behalf. So, I mean, you can see that there's there's some some uh, villain, villain-like qualities there. But I do agree with Andrew. I think Time and the Death Star are the real villains. And I think that Tarkin also plays a, a bigger role in this than any of us ever expected. I could have watched the whole movie, uh, Krennic and going back and forth that opening scene of them on the scorched planet uh where he's talking about his dead wife and you could tell he doesn't quite believe him but he's playing it sort of subtle and friendly but there's a element of threat there i just absolutely love that scene and that's one of the things i liked about krennic although he was just a sort of paint by the number for the plots villain um getting that air of weird personality out of one of these imperial uh, officers for once was I felt a really nice touch and really helped enrich uh, the empire and the politics for the empire for me. Well, Eddie, then Catalyst is a book for you. <laughs> yeah, that's when um, you mentioned a couple of bits. Now, I'll ask you a question, actually, because I haven't read it or read um, any of the plot stuff. And one of the timeline things that I've had trouble uh, justifying in my head is when that scene on the Scorch Planet kind of takes place with the Imperial officers um, when you c- cut back to Coruscant in the flashback. But then the fact that Jin's like nearly 30 years old or over 30 in where that would take place, is that right after the Empire formed in the scene on Coruscant, maybe during the Clone Wars and their officers like Yularen? Does, do they give uh, any timeline reference? Uh, in uh, the, 
Catalyst book, they run away about six years after the Empire takes over or so. So Jin is about six years old or so at the end of the movie, at the end of the book. So in the movie, here's like eight or nine, right? Maybe ten tops at the beginning of the movie. And yeah. they and they jump forward right to um, beginning of A New Hope, right? So it's really about ten years difference, I'd say, between the end of the book and here, guesstimate. It's really not clear how old she is at the end of the book when they run away. But she really is young. So yeah. it's it's kind of I, I mentioned that in my review to you. Not really sure. It's it's a little bit weird because the book starts in the middle of Attack of the Clones, and then it goes. The Empire uh, comes to power, etc., and they start building the Death Stars after Revenge of the Sith. So it's definitely maybe four or five years after Revenge of the Sith, I think, and then jumps to here. Does the book mention the Geonosian design of the Death Star? Yes, Pog of the Lesser is all over it. They do a lot of that stuff and how Krennic gets the stuff from Pog of the Lesser. Pog of the Lesser gets played and then runs away. It's a whole bunch of things in there. Honestly, that book is a lot of the detail you guys are, I can't believe, are actually wanting to know. It's all in the book, but <laughs> it, it plays pretty hollow to me. That's the word I'm using. It just it reads like a bunch of hooey. It, it, honestly, you don't really need it for this movie. And watching this movie, all these questions you're asking, it makes me feel like, oh, wow, good for them. I mean, there is a book out there for people who actually want to know. But when I was watching this movie, I didn't need any of it. Uh, I just got everything I needed from there. And I'm going to stick by my point. I really think that the credit character is superfluous to this entire thing. And I'd rather, I would have rather have seen Tarkin do it. I do agree that scene is great when he kind of just takes the Death Star away from the poor guy. But and I loved I loved seeing that castle of Darth Vader's on Mustafar. We've been reading about that in comics and in all these different things. It was supposed to be in Return of the Jedi, I believe, if you read the, uh, the original screenplay stuff. It's great to finally see that on screen. But my goodness gracious, that scene only exists so we can see that. <laughs> it had nothing to do with anything except it was just awesome to see. And I'm so glad you didn't like seeing Darth Vader take a bath. Just like Luke oh. in an Empire Strikes Back. I, I did actually kind of like that. I also kind of liked that uh, we saw how weak he was getting because as Marjorie probably will complain later, I think she said something on Facebook about it, was how Darth Vader moved at the end of the movie, which was freaking awesome how he kicked ass. But the, like, but, te but 10 minutes later when he fights Dan, uh, Ben Kenobi, what, two months later, he's moving around like an old man. So maybe he didn't get back to his little... Uh, back to tank to get re-energized re and maybe that's why he was able to move so quickly but that's Brock helping the movie a lot I just like Darth Vader kicking ass but honestly it didn't kind of fit with how Darth Vader fights Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope or even now he steps through the tentative door <laughs> later on he just killed a bunch of them and then later he just leaves it for stormtroopers to handle yeah let's talk about Vader for a little bit because if you look at the end of this movie I I'd assume that the whole him boarding the Tantive is, what, maybe an hour away, two hours away from the end of this movie? Does anybody have any idea? Maybe a couple days, even. Okay. So, like Brock said, when Vader, we see Vader, he's taking his milk bath, maybe he had a bath bomb, whatever. You know, he's got to take care of his burned skin. He delivers a pun, which I think is very uncharacteristic of the character. I mean, Vader is not, to steal Arnie's line, Freddy Krueger where he's whipping up these puns as he's hurting people and killing people. And then we see him go all BA on some rebel troopers. I don't know what the hell happened here because he was like on it and he was moving. He was fluid. He was using his lightsaber, which we didn't see until his battle with Obi-Wan. But then he used it apparently on some rebel ship. The second watching, because I, I remember you posting something on Facebook about this. I paid special attention to the way he handles that lightsaber, and he handles it with two hands, and it's very much in the keeping of how he handles it 
in the lightsaber duel with Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's not doing anything exaggerated or, or like they did in the prequels. To me, it fit, and I, I watched it very carefully the second time I watched it. Yes, just like when he picked Obi-Wan up and threw him against the wall using the Force and whipped guns out of everybody's hands using the Force. Imagine if this Darth Vader was on the Death Star as Luke is screaming no and shooting and what Darth Vader could have done to Luke at that moment. But he whipped guns out, he whipped Han's gun out of his hand and in Empire, he's throwing stuff at Luke using the Force with his lightsaber still uh, lit. Yes, but he didn't lift Luke up and throw him the way he did the people here. That's because it's his son. Yeah, he didn't want to kill Luke. I mean, guys, this. I mean, I, I, when, when I've read these comments about Vader about making puns and doing this, that, and the other, I'm just, I, I'm just flabbergasted because this is this is actually the Vader that we should have in these situations, and it is this simple result of the fact that this is 2016 movie making, whereas in 1977 with lightsabers that were props that were delicate, and if him and Alec Guinness had actually smash these things together they would have shattered i mean you know this this is just the progression of the filmmaking the the evolution of telling a star wars story but there's nothing out of character here i mean heck uh, vader on the tantive four and a new hope didn't fight at all he just kind of walked in and saw the the uh, uh the the destruction the stormtroopers laid to rest and you're just being kind of cool about it i mean i don't think there's anything in this movie that's out of character about darth vader it's it's the best we've seen him one thing i'm happy to see though is that we're 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 getting away and undoing and i think this has happened ever since disney took control of this concept of mocking darth vader in all of our other media like robot chicken and family guy and everything that just makes darth vader look like a goof this is where darth vader needs to be force unleashed style Darth Vader here was complete fan service, though, because they described this as the Star Wars war movie, and I think it is. I think this is truly a war movie when we get away from this little fan service of Ponda Baba, C-3PO, and Darth Vader and into the story and into the battles. But if you're going to have a war movie, then it should be Stormtroopers. You should be recreating the start of A New Hope here with Stormtroopers being the victors and killing all of those rebel troops in their silly hats instead of having Darth Vader. Why do you have Darth Vader here? Because we, collectively, including myself, will go, Yay! It's like a live-action version of The Force Unleashed! <laughs> but it doesn't serve the movie and it doesn't serve the story. But it leads right up into A New Hope, though. Right, because he's there at the end of of Rogue One. He sees the ship get away, and then in A New Hope, he says he's traced the rebel spies to her. So it it makes sense in that way. If you just if you're just looking at Rogue One, sure, it it doesn't need to be there. If you're just looking at it as a single movie, single entity, sure. But if you look at it as even though it's not part of the saga, if you look at it as one big saga, one big long epic operatic movie then, yeah, I think it makes sense for him to be there, at least at Scarif. I don't disagree with you there, but I think what we're saying is, and I loved, I loved watching him kick ass, especially, you know, if you read another EU book like Lords of the Sith, you read about Darth Vader kicking this kind of ass, and it's great, and you want to see Darth Vader kick this kind of ass. I wanted to see him do that in the prequels, and we didn't get a chance to see him do that in the suit at all. So to see this here was very, I was very happy about it. All I'm saying is, he just moved a little bit differently than, you know, continuity-wise is what I'm saying. But I honestly loved watching it, and I completely agree with you. I wanted Darth Vader at the end of this movie. The ending of the movie lined up great. It was perfect in that sense. 
because, yes, Darth Vader's chasing the Rebel spies, and this is the first victory against the Galactic Empire that the Rebels won. That's what we're watching them do, as in the opening crawl of A New Hope. But my complaint is, and all I'm saying is, that his movements seem a little bit out of what we next the next movie is when we see Darth Vader. That's all. And, and I loved watching it, and I can't wait to see it again. I'm just making that point. Apparently, they did redesign the suit. Um, they gave him more of a rubbery neck piece so that he could perform some of those movements. But for me, he did need to be there. Um, Krennic had failed. Tarkin had to send Vader in to do the business properly. And I, I, you call it fan service, but you can service me anytime if that's what you're going to give me in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just stole that's the line right. I was about to use, Steve. Um, I, yeah, I was very happy to be played to with that scene that just worked so well for me and i'm very happy to have vader back as a villain so much so that i actually work on top of an imax theater and one of the areas i work in is uh, connected to the escape door for the imax and i thought you know what i'm going to just put my ear up to the door yesterday and have a little listen and see where they're up to in the film and as i put my ear to the door it was at the exact moment where vader ignites the lightsaber then all I could hear was rebels screaming, and I still had a big childish grin uh, coming out of my face just hearing the audio of that little bit. It's just each time that bit, I have a big goofy smile on my face. You know, the only thing I expected going into the movie—not that I'm saying I'm disappointed by it—because to me, I'm, I'm whoever, whoever said earlier, I'm with you in the sense that I, I think Vader needed to be right on the tail of that ship. But I actually expected that it was Vader who was going to cut down. Cassian and the Imperial pilot, and I thought he would actually be the one who'd cut down the spies as they were delivering the plans. Like they send the transmission off, and it's Vader who 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 does the job. That would have been awesome. So, what about the actual movie? Instead of these little five minute moments <laughs> here and there, would you, I mean we talked a little bit about Jin and about Cassian and. I think a couple of you mentioned in passing all of the other characters. There's six total, Bodie, Imwit, Bays, and K2SO. And I'll agree with what was said. K2SO, I think, stole the movie. And I put in my notes for now playing that I wish Disney could write a human character that I like as much as I like the droids. Because BB-8 in The Force Awakens, K2SO here. But if there's a close second, I think it's... Cheer it. I really do like his blind force sensitivity and his chanting of I, I'm one with the force and all of that. I liked him way more than I thought I was going to. I really thought that he was going to just kind of come on to a couple quick moves and, and then, you know, not really contribute much to the to the rest of the movie. But I really loved his connection that he had with Jin. Um, just small little looks that you know, even though he's blind looks that he would give her. Um, and you know, like, um, the holding of the hand right after her dad died, just like little, little things that, that really, um, enhanced his character for me. And when he went down, I was a lot more emotional than I thought that I would be. I mean, when K2 went down, sure, you know, it's the family dog, but when he went down, I was like, Oh, that's, that's a crying shame. I really liked him. I thought he he was he was witty and he was funny. We didn't know much about him, and I really wish I had fleshed out more and had less characters, but more be more about a few of them. But I don't know something about him. He was just I don't know. He was good, and his moves weren't overdone. I was really worried we're going into like a Mortal Kombat situation with him. But I thought he was 
one of the better characters. He, uh, what I really liked about him, from my perspective, he's the spiritual glue that holds that team together. I, if you look at it, I mean, he brings, you know, Baze is kind of, kind of off in the distance, but when, when, you know, Cherit gets killed, Baze kind of, he brings Baze back into things. He's kind of the glue that holds the group together. And he had some pretty funny one-liners as well. Like, oh, how's your foot? When he, you know, jabs the stormtrooper in the foot, those kind of things that I really enjoyed. When he got the bag put over his head, he said, come on, I'm blind. Yep. Best gag, best gag of the film. Yeah, he had some of that Star Wars humor that I think sometimes gets lacking, and I liked him, and I liked his backup Baze with the big gun. I think they made a good pair there, and I, and I actually think not- that was one of the best arcs of the movie is uh, Baze and Chirrut. Like I really like them; they're almost the uh, Waldorf and Statler Muppet characters that are just there in the background with different points of view on what's going on as the chorus. But there's little drop references to like Bays being the most devoted of the Guardian of the Wills, but it sort of changed once the temple fell and, you know, he's gone very much away from the Force and carries the biggest gun we've possibly seen in Star Wars. It's more fitting with uh, Cable than a Star Wars character. And then once he passes that, Baze kind of starts talking about the force again and heading off like there was a really nice character arc there that wasn't on the forefront but was really fantastic between the two would not surprise me if we get a spin-off for these two and it does not surprise me that that chris uh likes chira as his favorite character for the film i mean who are chris's character foci yoda maz and then you've got another sort of spiritual dude in um, Chirrut. Um, uh, if you're a fan of Japanese cinema, you can easily identify him as Zatoichi, the blind swordsman. Um, and he really struck a chord with me, but Baze even more so. The sort of big lumbering, um, like you say, cable gun carrying guy who eventually finds back his spiritual side. I, I thought these two were a real hit. I got a lot of Chewbacca off of him. Uh, even though Chewbacca doesn't talk, blah, blah, blah. I really felt uh, Chewbacca with him. The the blind guy, what's the blind guy's name again? Chirrut. Chirrut. I, I, I like Chirrut a lot as well. I thought that he gave the right amount of spiritual and the right amount of action. I kind of like that he wasn't a Jedi, but he was more in the vein of what Maz is. And I like kind of like that idea. I also like that they mentioned the wills. We all know the journal of the wills, and they're bringing that back in. Same with kyber crystals. That's back from Splinter of the Mind's Eye way, way back when. Or Lucas's original draft of Star Wars, if you want to go there. There you go. So there, Arnie, thank you very much for that clarification. He's absolutely right. So it's kind of nice to bring all this back in uh, to into Star Wars proper. So uh, these little notices that you and I will get uh, – really made it for me and and to have a character who's blind that's a very it's a classic kind of thing we also have the um uh gosh what is kanan we also have kanan on the rebel show now blind uh going through some very similar things so it's it's a really nice uh nod to that as well very good character very smart making him blind but of course as in shakespeare the blind characters always see the most don't they and i loved um their performances as well as Bodies when uh, the Jeddah city was being destroyed. Um, they just gave some great reaction shots there uh, in their run. Bodie's performance is really good. The the actor Riz Ahmed deserves a lot of credit. I thought he he, he played that part superbly. Didn't, didn't particularly start off well, but he's a character who matured through the plot. And I thought he really added something to the team. 
Yeah, it was a character that didn't have much on the page, but the actor did really well to find what was there. Like, I, I was really impressed with his performance. He's a pilot who doesn't fly much. He kind of backseat <laughs> drives when K2SO is flying, and there's a lot of people who can fly here with Cassian and K2SO and Bodhi all being able to pilot. I'm not quite sure why Chirrut and Bass tag along for all of the missions. I mean, Cassian says, we're not here to make friends. He doesn't know those two. And then they're instantly picked up and go to every single planet afterward. Yeah, well, I think it's... That's what, that's what I had in my notes. I mean, as much as I liked the characters and liked the performances, I didn't think they added much to the movie at all. I mean, yeah, Jared threw out a few words of wisdom that kind of made this person think and this person think. And I guess he was the one that realized that pilot was in the cell next to him, Bode. But by and large, I'm with you on that, Arnie. But one thing I'll, I'll go back to, to me, K2SO did not steal this movie. I mean, to me, he was a good little background character that made some funny little quips, maybe should have been what Jar Jar should have been, like this kind of character in episode one. To, to me, I saw K2SO as sort of the... It was kind of like Chewbacca and C-3PO merged into one character. Like, he had a prim and proper voice, but obviously it was more, more sarcastic, so maybe there's a little chopper in there too, I guess. Uh, but if he needed to take a stormtrooper and throw him through three other stormtroopers, he could. And that's kind of the physicality. I kind of wish we'd seen more out of Chewbacca. Um, of course, that was always, um, well, I guess not always, but I mean, I guess there was, uh, um, obviously in the original trilogy, there probably would have been some limitations from stunts and CG that would have uh, allowed us to see that. Uh, but I didn't think he stole the movie at all. He never distracted me from what was going on. And I don't think he necessarily added to it, but he, he was a, he was a fun character. And yeah, the way he sort of sacrificed himself for the, for uh, Cassian and Jin at the end was, uh, was, was really touching. He closed it off, make sure they're safe and fought off as long as he could. And it was, a, it was a good end. Like I said, Jar, I mean, Jar Jar should have been this meaningful to episode one, but so I think they got, got him just right. But to me, I did, did not steal the, the show for me at all. But he was the only character that actually had any emotion about, for some reason I was worried about the droid and maybe just because he seemed to be the only one who showed feelings, I mean, he he hated Jin, obviously, but I know I really felt like he was the most human of the characters because we did get to see emotion from him. And I didn't know what to expect going in. I was kind of expecting just like a bland droid that went along for the ride or perhaps he was evil. And to have him be a fun, sarcastic, dedicated to his master droid, I really think that it was a fantastic character. And... I feel really bad that the only character I connected with was the mechanical one. You know, Marjorie, uh, he had the best lines. He was a great presence every time he was there. And I think we can all agree that, or arguably, he had the only character arc in the whole movie. Whether or not that qualifies as stealing the movie, I don't know. But clearly, he was your favorite part of the movie, and I'll give you that. I, I don't think, for me, he didn't steal the movie. I think he is a highlight of this movie, for sure. A lot of fun, a great droid. I love the sh part when Jin shoots the other one, and he's like, "Wait, do you think that was me, or was it, or was it the other guy who shot her?" Anyway, the point is, when the when the droid got shot right in front of him, it was really funny to me because it was like, "Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute!" It was it was brilliant. It, they did a lot of great things with that character that they didn't do with any other character in this movie, which was, I guess, heightening the frustrations I had. Uh, for some of the other characters. And I know I've been picking on the movie a lot. I really did like it. But I, I, I do think that this character, I, I got the just amount, the right amount of that character. Any more of him, he would have been annoying. I liked him. He was sarky. He was no nonsense. He was my kind of droid. 
and I agree with Brock that bit where they where she shot him. I, I really went oh, oh, uh, and then realised no, they haven't shot him. But no, I, it, 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 he was the most attached I was to a character during the film, and his death um, was the nearest to bringing a tear to my eye. Now, um, speaking of droids, were the Death Troopers droids? Were they like probe droid, battle droid type creatures, or were they people under hmm. there? Well, I can only assume they were people, but I was uh, I was flipping through the visual dictionary to see if they explained to it explained to us at all of like what their communication was. I don't know if that was like encoded or a different language or what it was, but they sounded like they were talking to each other, like uh, uh, like R two units or uh, the, the Death Star droid, you know, whatever that language is. I was a little confused by that, but I never I never at any point in time wondered if they were droids. I like your idea of it being encoded uh, dialogue that the helmet might translate or something. There. That's a good thought. I believe they were actually talking in Australian. Ah, yeah, that's <laughs> slang. All right, we're going to be up at Sparrow's Fart. Grab the dingo. We're off we are. <laughs> there you go. That, that was a, that was a perfect impression. <laughs> Past the dead horse. So, yeah. Um, I. Yeah, I did like that the only thing that um, seemed to make them cooler than regular stormtroopers was that they could hit what they were shooting at. It was, that seemed to be the only difference was they, they could aim as stormtroopers. The stormtroopers did pretty well, though, against the extremist attack on Jeddah. The attack on Jeddah, I feel like this was a hugely edited section because when you had the scene with Cherits and Bays came out and surrounding the Stormtroopers, there was like a recently downed X-Wing in the background and there's a wide shot uh, at one point that has uh, the Chicken Walker coming through the city and just before it cuts, it's moving around the building and you see all these crashed TIE fighters and I get the feeling there was a much bigger battle there in the original cut. Yeah, and there was a lot of emphasis on um, the uh, resistance fighters, you know, stealing back the kyber crystals. And what's the story there? Like, what are what are they stealing them for? Are they going to give them back to the protectors of the wills, or or what? What is the the um, point of that other than to just you know disrupt imperial progress? You're right. There's that one shot of them putting it in like that canister you use when you go to the bank and then to put it in the pneumatic tube. <laughs> right, and I was like, yeah. what are they doing? <laughs> Kyber crystals are used to power the laser of the Death Star. So I think... Right, but they don't know that. I think they don't know that. Yes, I, I don't know. know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But that's but what's what that's the background behind why the Kyber crystals are probably being shipped, why they're stealing them, maybe just to be, you know, a pain in the neck to the Empire. Who knows? They, they know they're important to Jedis, though. That's why they're in the church on Jeddah, um, because they're the crystals that power the lightsabers as well. Right. I, were they stealing crystals that were already mined, or were they mining and that planet was just full of kyber? I believe they were stealing them from the Jedi Church on Jeddah. Yes. In the Catalyst novel, too, there's a whole thing about how they have a suitcase full of crystals that look like they were taken out of Jedi lightsabers. So they're not, uh, because the Jedi were basically saving kyber crystals or hoarding kyber crystals or keeping the secrets of where they are so they could use them for their lightsabers. The kyber crystals are very hard and rare and hard to find. So now the Empire rules the galaxy anywhere they can find these kyber crystals so they can use them for the superpower weapon because they need a lot of them to power this weapon, etc., etc. It's all in the it's all in that book. But again, I guess you did need that a little bit of detail on it. But 
honestly, I just I just took it to be they're terrorizing the Empire because they knew the Empire needed this and they're trying to stop the Empire from getting the supplies they need. Um, it's a rebellion sort of thing. How many did they have that it took how many transports constantly? I mean, they were in Jeddah for quite some time. And then when Tarkin's like, we're going to blow up our own city here, they say it was a mining accident. So that made me think they were mining for these things. Yeah, that's yeah, the I, impression I, that I, I got, too. The mine got, was below the temple. That's I, I figured they'd built the temple on top of the mine. That's what I, I, I agree with Eddie there. That's exactly my thought. So they were they were mining them and taking them from the temple, and the temple was over the mine. I did like having the Kybers as sort of a nice flow element for the story. So obviously Galen was a Kyber crystal expert, which then he'd know about the Jedi and know about the Force, which is why um, Vale said to Jin, may the Force be with you, and gives her a necklace of Kyber, which is how Chirrut knows that she's wearing the necklace, is that it's a Force-sensitive necklace to see, and then brings them together, and it's the heart of every star, which is it's the heart of the Death Star, but also connected with her being Stardust and the heart, and how they find the plans at the end. And there was just a nice flow element using the Kyber as the base that I really dug. I agree with you completely, and how awesome would it have been, then, if, as someone else said earlier, if Darth Vader was the one to take them two guys out when they get in the plans, because he sensed her with the Kyber crystal. Honestly, yep. they missed opportunity. And I do think there were there might have been that more cut stuff there, but the original trailer, there was a lot more of them being down on the beach battlefront with the plan, and I, I get the feeling there was a completely different ending there with the battle. I don't know if Darth Vader was there, but um, something dramatically changed there in that last fight. Yeah, Slash Film has a great article about that that shows footage there was footage of like the entire group running on the beach and Jin was carrying that hard drive there's that shot from the third trailer of the tie fighter like raising up we think it might shoot Jin on the top of that big sensor dish they changed that ending a lot with the reshoots and who knows for what and felicity jones did have a sequel option maybe she didn't die in the original maybe she hopped a tie fighter and got the hell out they also had the uh shot of them running back through uh, the building, um, which was that part of London where they filmed, where they've got the plans as well, which was not in there. Mm. And K2SO's with them, so he obviously didn't die at that same point. Yep. You know, speaking of that that battle scene on, on Jeddah, one moment I did love was when Cassian shoots the extremist rebel who's got the grenade and he falls there. I don't know why, but I, I love that little point. Like, he was willing to just, you know, shoot somebody who, for all intents and purposes, was fighting on the same side as him. That was no shock. I mean, that was how we were introduced to him is, oh, you're helping me yep. out. I'm going to literally shoot you in the back. You know, that that confused me on the first viewing because it just, you know, comes out of nowhere. And you're like, wait a minute, what what was going on? And I didn't I didn't piece it together the second time that that guy was going to throw a bomb at the tank that Jen was hiding next to. So he was doing it just to save Jen because that bomb would have most likely killed her because he was going to throw it to the tank. And at that point, she had rescued that little girl and then ran right to one of the back corners of the tank. So that was less of a, hey, I'm just going to be murderous because this guy's in my way. And more so it's like, well, if I don't do this, then Jen's dead and I need Jen. Oh, I didn't I didn't even catch that. I'll have to look for that. And it pays off because that's when Saw's partisans notice them and then take them in hostage. Yeah. And that's also that's where Chirrut and Bays become part of it because Jin says, if anyone harms my friends, then they answer to me. I'm the daughter of um, Galen and... It sort of is um, a pivotal moment for forming the team there through counterpoints as it comes to. But speaking of Jeddah, was that 
Is Jeddah part of the EU? Because I noticed all the planets seem to have weird little puns associated with them with the name. Had that been established before? The the Jedi from Jeddah. I looked it up yeah. on Wikipedia, and it had not been used before. I wondered if it was one of those planets where Ahsoka took the younglings to get crystals or something, but its first appearance yeah. is here. Okay, yeah, because I noticed there was... Um, the prison planet was basically an anagram of Obi-Wan. The space outport where Cassian shoots the guy is like Kathleen, which sounds like Kathleen, um, as in Kathleen Kennedy. And the only one, and I, Edu I took as um, potentially referencing Expanded Universe, um, but Scarif was the only one I was having trouble with, and I was the closest I could think of is it sounds like Gareth, the director, but I'm not too sure. I'll tell you what did bug me. Um, well, the first 20, 25 minutes, we were going from planet to planet to planet to planet. It was like a travelogue, for God's sake. Um, but the, the, you know, the little um, details names. of where the planet was, yeah, the names in the bottom left or bottom right-hand corner, that is so very un-Star Wars. And, uh, and for the first 20 minutes or so, that was getting my uh, antsy, definitely. Yet we didn't get it on Vader's planet, which I assume is Mustafar, mm. but nobody actually, I guess, knows for sure. I haven't got that far in my visual dictionary if it's there. Pablo Hidalgo has confirmed it is Mustafar. Okay. Oh, and it, it makes total sense because I think there have been tr- some treatments of Return of the Jedi that, that already told us that they had a castle on a planet like that, and it just makes sense. I will say that the visual dictionary does say about Jeddah that some insist the sandy world of ancient spirit spirituality gave its name to the Jedi Order, though most scholars believe it to be the other way around, is what the Visual Dictionary says. I am hoping we get away from desert planets in future movies, though. As nice as it was to see they mixed up the desert here, being a more Middle Eastern-style desert, um, I think we've had a lot of desert planets at the moment. I'd like to see some variation. Oh, I, I was wrapped to see the beach planet. I love Scarif, yeah. That was the standout planet for me, and I'm glad they spent the last half hour there. For me, that was a a visually um, stimulating planet, definitely. Uh, the, the palm trees, the water, the, the the sand, it really made for a, a, a nice background to the climax. And the, the, sh- the shield around the whole planet with the gate added a bit of tension, definitely. I loved that final battle. Being Star Wars, it's going to be two-pronged. We're going to have the land battle and the space battle. And... I thought the writers were kind of stretching to make sure all of the six had something to do, even if it's just run a networking cable. That's your job, Bodie. Make sure you get it done because it's vital. <laughs> but I did really like seeing the ATACTs come around when Bay shoots that RPG at it and it just comes back. Then to see X Wings versus ATACTs. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I've seen in video games for years and loved seeing in an actual movie. Yeah, so that I, end battle was amazing to me. Like it, it rivals the end battle of Jedi. I have to All, ask: Did anyone else have the thought of why couldn't they get the X wings to work on Hoth? They mentioned like icing up of the engines. That's what I was kind of going to for Hoth. I'm like, Man, they can take out you know X wings can take out these. Why didn't they use them on Hoth? But okay. We only saw one X-Wing on Hoth. Luke's. Maybe they didn't have any there because they're all destroyed, or who knows? Lots were taking off. Several were taking off with the frigates. and Oh, that's right. They were protecting the, the frigates. Yeah. That's yeah. what it was. They were protecting You'll the transports. You'll get two X-Wings to, uh, in your convoy, yeah. That must be it, then, because the speeders could stay behind, but the X-Wings were needed to, oh, to okay, protect Okay, yeah. Them. That would make sense. <laughs> yeah. And also, it. these you know, are more cargo adats than 
the ones yeah. on Hoth, they they seem to have you know hollowed structures and that. So well, I imagine they're not as armored. And, that, and that's what yeah, that's why I assumed is that they were probably not primarily meant for combat. Although certainly the the head of the thing is armed to the gills. But did it, did anybody else kind of feel like that this was the, the the battle on Scarif? And I don't think this was a bad thing. But we're talking about callbacks and always making sure that you have something that's Star Warsy. But did anybody feel like that this battle on Scarif was sort of what Endor would have been like if the Rebels lost? I mean, I know they accomplished their mission, but everybody died. And to me, it felt very Endory because you did have the beaches and stuff, but obviously a lot of woods. And I play, I played the scenes on Battlefront a little bit, and I kind of feel like I'm parts of it. I'm in Endor, and the bunkers are the same, and they're trying to get this open and get to this and transmit this, whatever, whatever. It felt very like the battle in Endor, only it didn't quite go well for the individuals on the planet. It did, even with the Mon Calamari up in space, but. Yeah, I, I loved all, <laughs> yeah. I, I loved all the touches. I, I love the fact that we got Gold Leader back. Uh, I love the eighties, uh, uh, you know, the big Atat uh, ripped in half uh, by by bullets. For, for me, the, I love the Hammerhead Corvette and the uh, the way it destroyed the two Star Destroyers. Everything about that that battle was uh, aces. I thought it combined the space battles of A New Hope and Return of the Jedi really, really well. The scenes when all the TIE fighters were spreading out was amazing, just like out of Jedi when it's um, when they come at the Millennium Falcon. I also loved, and I probably laughed the loudest in the theater, when they killed Red Five. thought that was hysterical. <laughs> Great touch. <laughs> yes. Great touch. And we have the, an opening for Red Five. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody. The, the wife and I um, laughed and looked at each other like, great. It's, we had to give each other the same look when Bale says, I got to get back to Alderaan. We're like, oh, don't do it, man. Don't do it. So the same kind of thing with the Red Five. is like, that's a nice moment for us fans who really get it. And, you know, that's the kind of nod that I really enjoyed more than the Ponda Baba one. That, that kind of stuff is really fun for us. Mm. And, and to have Gold Leader back, you know, I was thinking to myself, why don't they bring Biggs back? And then I realized, wait a minute, at this time, Biggs is telling Luke on Tatooine, I'm going to defect if the actual deleted scenes are uh, canon, right? And also, I was thinking also, Red Leader and Gold Leader, they're dead. So they don't actually have to pay them. <laughs> but, but maybe Biggs is still alive. I think he's still alive, so they have to pay him if he actually uses likeness. I mean, that's kind of meta. But I kind of actually went through it. Why isn't Biggs there? Why is it, where's, where's Porkins? Why don't they use Porkins again? But then that would have been too much of a good thing. Seeing Red Leader and Gold Leader was just a great thing to do. I liked seeing them, although I was taken a little bit out because... I thought they used the exact same footage from A New Hope. I'm reading that it was alternate takes, but it felt like they were just cutting right out of A New Hope mm. like a fan film. And I did think, though, when the pilot was being discussed that was defecting and had this information, I thought when I watched this the first time, because I went in completely spoiler-free, I thought it was going to be Biggs. I thought Biggs was the defecting pilot there, and I thought that would have been a nice tie-in. Recast, don't CGI, and did Bodhi really add that much to this film, or could we have had Biggs and left him on Yavin? Well, I actually thought years ago when they first announced the cast before we knew who they were playing, that there was that one shot that had even Alan Tidak in like an outfit. We didn't know he was playing a droid, but Diego Luna looked a lot like Biggs. And I'm a big uh, Dark Lighter fan, so I was really hoping because there was word of a you know a defecting pilot and that and some of the leaked synopsis stuff that had come out that it was going to be Biggs that goes on uh, this journey. But uh, obviously Cassian ended up being a completely different character. But if you look at just um, his outfit design and the mustache and that, you could see him passing as Biggs Dark Lighter. I love the fact that they sent Blue Squadron through the gate first. Yes. 
knowing that it was going to close on them and they were all going to be obliterated. And of course, with Blue Screen, they couldn't have had Blue Squadron back in 1977. Ah, but they were Blue Squadron in the original script, and then they were changed to Red Squadron in final shooting and editing. So I thought that was kind of a nice touch also that Lucas had envisioned a Blue Squadron. Actually, in the novel, they're all Blue Squadron, not Red, if you remember. So it's exactly the same thought I had, too, that they finally put a Blue Squadron in the movie. And um, I think that later a Blue Squadron is... um Ellie Etzo from Force Awakens. So I think he's been killed twice now, two films in a row in an X-Wing. Now, my big question here, though, the very first time I saw this movie, I've seen it three times now, the very first time, about three quarters of the way through, I mean, during the end battle, it hit me. This movie is not really toyetic. I felt like, and I said this on Now Playing, somebody from Lucas Licensing was sitting there saying, um, yeah, we need to sell toys. The tickets aren't going to cover the whole cost of this movie. We need toys. We're going to make you insert black stormtroopers, even though there's not a real story reason. Let's take these TIE fighter wings and make them flat. Let's put some beige paneling on this AT-AT and let's make toys. But did this movie make any of you want to buy toys? And I'm not saying the designs. I still love the Death Trooper design. I love my Death Trooper hot toy. But... The movie itself isn't one that makes me think I need to go out and have action figures of this. Actually, for me, and I didn't do it, as you guys know, I had, I, I don't buy a lot of figures uh, from Clone Wars, Rebels, Force Awakens. I mean, just I, from Force Awakens, I bought like two or three figures. I think a Kylo Ren, a couple uh, First War Stormtroopers. So I'm very much off the... No, I'm not collecting from this Disney universe. I got I got to draw a line somewhere. But I was in Target yesterday, and they happened to have on shelf the entire starting lineup. They had a Cassian figure. They had a, um, you know, Jin. They had Cheat and uh, you know, just all of them with a Krennic and a K2SO and just had them on. I lay them out, five of them, and I, or five or six of them, however many it is. And I'm like, huh. And then seven ninety nine. How's a target? Did the math? I'm like, no, 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 stop, stop, Jerry. Got to walk away. Got to walk away. I did, I did, because that's how much I liked the movie, the crew, the 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 characters. Is how much I dug it that I did almost buy the figures, but I didn't. <laughs> I did buy no. a visual guide, which I never buy. So I was interested enough to say, hey, okay, I do want to learn more and at least kind of get some of the details, like I used to do. Uh, I didn't care. I couldn't care less about Force Awakens. I had there was never a risk of me buying the visual guide for Force Awakens. But this one, I wanted to know more about, hey, what's that little thing on the side of that ship do? You know, Arnie, I've been looking at Target now for weeks, you know, going Christmas shopping for my children. And whereas last year with the Force Awakens, it was hard to find stuff. Every time I go into a different Target or Meyer or any other stores around me, they're stocked to the gills with Rogue One toys. Now, either it's because they made so much more of it or it's because a lot of people don't feel the need to buy toys for this movie. I think you're dead on about something here. And, and maybe it's because maybe they saw, oh, last year we didn't make enough or we, we maybe they overdid it this time. But I'm thinking this, a lot of people just feel that they don't need to buy the toys for this movie, as you're saying. The only thing that this movie made me want to buy is that Target exclusive Cassian and or blaster rifle that kind of goes together in different configurations because that thing was awesome. All the other toys, I kind of already pick them up because I love my three and three quarter inch figures in my Black Series, so I'm going to get them anyway. Uh, But the only thing that this movie really made me want to buy is a Nerf gun. Don't get me wrong, I'm buying all the figures. I'm just saying this movie doesn't drive (laughs) it. If this wasn't a Star Wars movie and I wasn't already a collector, 
this wouldn't push me in that direction. And with the exception, again, I think there were some great designs with the Death Trooper, but outside of just good design work, I didn't walk out of there like, I need to go home and play with a Cassian Andor figure the way I would have felt about a Han Solo. And I don't see kids doing that. I don't see this as a kid's movie. All your heroes die, kids. Let's go get a McDonald's Happy Meal. I'm going to split down the middle here. I agree with you, Arnie, 100% on the vehicles. Let's take a look at that, what is it, the (laughs) U-Wing? The first one, actually, both U-Wings in this movie get shot down. They're not as, you know, they're not iconic like the X-Wing or the Millennium Falcon or something like that. So the vehicles, I completely agree. The figures is where I'm kind of half and half. You know, after seeing the movie, I'm like, yeah, I could have, you know, I did, in fact, go all in on figures for this movie even before um, because for me, I'm like, well, it's close to the OT, so I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and go in. But for me, after seeing the movie, I'm like, yeah, I could have done without a Cassian and a uh, Jin figure. But you know what? I really want uh, a Chirrut Imwe figure and a Bay's Malbus, and I really want them in the six-inch black sale black series scale that you know is going to come probably january february um but some of them i'm like yes i want k2so definitely want him and some of them i'm like yeah i could have done without him i can tell you that that 60 dollars target pack now i don't feel the need to own cassian in another outfit and buy that 60 dollars pack at target i tell you what i'm disappointed with i i feel like i was sold this movie that it was going to have a more sort of new hope alien feel to it uh, um i mean there was there've been some great alien characters really pushed forward like the character bistan who was really pushed front and center at celebration europe in the summer who got what four or five seconds of screen time um there, there, there's a wonderful figure in a two-pack called moroff who's like a big white Afghan hound on two legs with a backpack and super gun. Um, Really good-looking figure, good-looking character. And he's in the sort of background of Edrio Two Tubes gang uh, on Jeddah. Again, you don't see him as a whole character. You just see snippets. In fact, he's he's this film's Constable Zuvio. Um, There's a, a rebel called Pow, who, again, you see what 10 20 seconds screen time worth i i just felt this was going to be a a, a more sort of alien character film and yet it was the humans that were pushed to the front again yeah but how many seconds was hammerhead on on the screen in a new hope right i mean that's to me it feels exactly like the original trilogy especially a new hope where it's there are all these aliens that you just kind of barely catch a glimpse of but they're cool enough designs that you think oh hey i think i might go ahead and pick one of those up speaking specifically to that big white character uh i happened to pick up the art of uh rogue one book and in the initial stages that big white guy that's in saw's group uh, was initially supposed to be one of the characters in the group of seven or six or however many there are that go out and is one of the spies or whatever. Um, it was supposed to have more of an alien group feel to the actual core group of, of rebels going after people. He was actually supposed to have a little sidekick, almost like a salacious crumb size with him, uh, in the project. Um, toy wise, I don't know if there's anything, uh, that's not out there yet that I would want them to make. Maybe if I was a, a small kid, I might want to kind of play around with an Imperial shuttle that they fly there at the end and kind of use that with, you know, Bodie running a cable to it or whatever, something like that maybe. But maybe more as a high-end collector now, uh, I would love to have a 
and I don't know what you would call that little stadium stand that that K2SO stands in when they're going into the records vault, but I'd love to get, you know, a, a um, statue from Sideshow or from General Giant or something of K2SO in that round figure area. The only thing I want to say in response to the how, how much time was Hammerhead on the original screen, I think by the time the Star Wars figures came out, right, didn't they know that the alien cantina scene blew people's minds and they wanted to capitalize on that it's been 40 years since that iconic scene came out and a lot of us are now you know hip to that jive that these minor characters i mean we, we i think we, a lot of us complained about this last year with the force awakens that the the mayor of the city right got the got the action figure and he wasn't even in the movie or whatever so it's a kind of same thing and they talk about this how they have a lead time and they just try to pick some characters to make figures of etc but i think the the point of what I was trying to say is that the hammerhead thing is, you know, the walrus man, these are, are characters that people remember from that cantina scene. They're trying to capitalize. So I'm not sure it's the same thing. I think here they had that big white guy in the, in the, in the toy aisle, which he is plenty of him in my target today where I was there today, right next to the gin Ursos that just aren't selling where I am. So I, I think the point is that I think the, the kids are just not going for it. But I also agree with Arnie. It's not really a kid's movie. This is like more intense star Wars movie that we've seen in a long time. And, and I think that, Maybe the kids aren't actually going to the movie to buy the toys as much as collectors are. There were definitely some kids in our audience that I almost wanted to turn around and warn the parents that they may have some deep conversations on their way home. (laughs) But yet I still even see Revenge of the Sith, which people said wasn't a kid's movie because of Burned Anakin, as being a movie that makes you want to go home and play. You know, you want to go home and play with the lightsabers and play with the force powers and play Yoda versus Sidious fights here. I don't know that I really get the, I want to play creepy Tarkin versus Krennic debating. You know, I play that at work. Now we don't have children, but my litmus test for this is my niece and nephew. My niece is nine years old and my brother took her to see Rogue One yesterday, but not Luke who was only five years old because they kind of worried it would be a little bit much for him. Lily loved it. Her favorite character, K2SO. My brother really thought she was going to go in. He thought she'd like Jin because she really liked Ray last year. And notice I said last year because she has moved on to something else. But she was enthralled with K2SO and she didn't have any problems with the movie with it being too violent or too bleak or anything like that. Hasbro, if you're listening, I do want a Daedric Chessa making in three and three quarter inch, please. Um, it was featured in this film again. Some characters in Saw Gerrera's hideout were playing with sort of a, a real version of the hologrammatic version of the game. The question was asked, do we feel like people just aren't buying the toys or do we feel like Hasbro's put out more? And my answer to that is yes. I think that less people are buying these, but I also think Hasbro put out a lot more. I had some real serious concerns about finding some of these you know, wave two, three and three quarter inch, the five POA and some of these other ones. And you know what? Every place I've gone is stocked to the gills. You can find every character you want to find in this. So I think it's actually both. I do think Hasbro looked at what was out last year and said, yeah, we kind of didn't get enough out there. So they put more out, but that may actually come back to bite them this year. Well, that seems like a perfect segue to the show we're going to do next, where we take a look at 2016 in collecting. So, group final thoughts on Rogue One, and we'll go through. Marjorie? Well, you know, it wasn't a bad movie. It was a good movie. I just don't know if it was Star Wars enough for me. 
it had some Star Wars nods. I kind of felt like the nods to the original trilogy were, well, I think I might have been bruised from all the nudge nudge that goes with the wink wink from all the throwbacks. Didn't care for Vader in it. It was cool to have Vader, but it was completely pandering. But it was still kind of a fun war movie, and it, it wasn't horrible. I don't know if I'd put it up there with the original trilogy. Definitely better than The Force Awakens, though. Steve. Agree with Marjorie, better than The Force Awakens, even though I'm not ranking it in the saga. Um, a real curate's egg of a film. Some good, some bad. Um, some real disappointment, some real high points as well. Um, but I think the real the real test, I mean, we all knew this was going to be more or less okay. The real test is the young Han Solo film as a standalone. Eddie? Uh, I think this film's like Forrest Whitaker himself. There's, there's a lot of talent here on the screen, uh, but choices are being made, and I think it's going to depend on how you feel about the choices, uh, whether or not you enjoy the movie. But uh, I... I I went along with it. I did quite like it. It's Star Wars in a lot of ways to me, and then in other ways it's stepped away from Star Wars, uh, which I'm happy for them to do uh, with these spin-off films. So I, I like getting a different perspective, uh, point of view on the universe. Brock? I had a great time with it. I can't wait to see it again. I only got a chance to see it once, and I know I'm already seeing it next week again, so I'm all set. And I really liked a lot of the Star Wars elements. I liked a lot of the EU elements. Even though I just I was disappointed with the main villain, and I kind of knew that going in after reading that book, I really enjoyed the whole package uh, overall. I'm nitpicking here with you guys because I can, and because that's you know I want to. I mean, <laughs> I, I like this movie enough that I really want to love it, and I can't love it, love it like I did say The Empire Strikes Back. But it really is a good movie, and I'm really glad it exists. I'm really glad they took the chances they did, and it gives me a. Um, even more hope for that Han Solo movie that Steve mentioned. So hopefully uh, that'll be as good, if not better than this one. Rebellions are built on hope. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> Daryl. Definitely a movie I enjoyed uh, up there for me uh, with the original trilogy. Um, can't say enough good about it. I We did nitpick here about certain characters and this and that, but overall a, a very good Star Wars movie to me. Uh Happy that it came around. This is what I was hoping for with the prequels, with the previous movies, things like that. If we had got this type of film back then, I think everyone would have been a lot happier. And I think Star Wars would have been even bigger than it is now. Andrew? I feel like I wanted this movie to be a little bit more of a war movie. It'll be interesting to see if we ever get uh, to see any of the uh, alternate cut, the original cut that was done. I think that there's almost two movies here. There's the original one that turned that was turned in and you can see some of the really artistic uh, choices that was made behind the camera. Uh, and then there's the, the reshoots, which is um, a little bit more flashy, a little bit more um, Hollywood with, you know, climbing up a, a stack of hard drives to get to the uh, satellite dish that uh, felt a little rote to me, but overall um, I had a, a really good time. I think that uh, fans who, uh, easily pick empire strikes back as our favorite film uh will really dig the tone of this movie uh but if you're looking for a fun star wars romp um you know prepare yourself because uh this one's going to feel a little different but uh, i think you should still give it a chance and you know sit around with a bunch of friends and nitpick everything you didn't like but also praise everything that uh, really you know deservedly pushed this movie to the top of the box office chris 
I love this movie, and I know we've sat here, as Brock said, and we've nitpicked it um, because we can and we're fans, um, and we've been, you know, in the game so long. But I did really love this movie, and for me, you know, I, I will rank it in, in the saga, and I, I'll rank this one in a solid fourth, and it only just beats out Return of the Jedi because of my emotional attachment to that being the first Star Wars movie that I actually remember seeing in the theater. Um, if it wasn't for that, it would probably be in third for me. Uh, one that I really loved, uh, I think Daryl said it best when we were kind of texting back and forth uh, after the movie, is this is, a, this is Star Wars for adults. And this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted the prequels to be. And I'm not a prequel hater. I just want to say that. Um, but this is what we wanted the prequels to be. So for me, I, I love this. I, I can't wait to see it again. And Sarah? Um, I will not rank this movie uh, with the others. I think it's a standalone all by itself. It's not a true Star Wars movie. It's missing some of those other elements that make it a true Star Wars film. You know, the crawl being one of them. I, I don't completely hate the movie, but it's not a love of mine. I'll probably see it again with Chris, but I just don't think that Jin's character was strong enough. I don't think that the supporting characters with her really carried the movie to the full potential that it could have been. Um, like I said, I don't completely hate it, but I'm not 100% in love with it. And again, if you want to hear my thoughts, I let my nine co-hosts here have the floor because I discussed this for over two hours with Jacob and Stuart over at NowPlayingPodcast.com. That show was released yesterday, so you can check that out. But before we go, Brock, you've mentioned Catalyst a few times. Over the weekend, before you'd seen this movie, your book review went out on our YouTube channel. And for those who haven't heard it, here is Brock giving his review of that James Lucino book. This is Brock, Star Wars Action News Book Club Liaison, with a spoiler-free as possible review of Star Wars Catalyst, A Rogue One Story, by James Lucino. Review copies courtesy of Delray Books and Random House Audio. Star Wars Catalyst, A Rogue One Novel, is a companion book to the upcoming movie Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. The book takes place over the course of about five years or so, tough to exactly say how long, starting during the Clone Wars during the time of Attack of the Clones, and ending with Jyn Erso, the protagonist of the Rogue One movie, as a youngster of six years old or so. There are plenty of passages of the characters reflecting on the past before where we meet them in the story here, but not legitimate flashbacks of those time periods. The action revolves mostly around Jin's father, Galen Urso, her mother, Lyra Urso, and their friend, Imperial Commander Orson Krennic, who is one of the men in charge of the Empire's secret project, Celestial Power. That means the Death Star! Who we know is the villain in Rogue One, and from the second trailer, that he eventually captures Galen Urso against his will to do his work. One thing this novel does do is thankfully explain in detail why this Death Star project took 20 years to complete. If you remember, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, we see a space station already under construction, and during A New Hope, the battle station becomes fully operational for the first time. That was a head-scratcher for me for all these years, and I finally get some reasonable explanation why. And I am not a world history expert, but I got a definite World War II atomic bomb Manhattan Project influence off the secret project aspects of this novel. The greatest scientific minds of the time working on solving energy issues for a superweapon, that sort of thing. 
not to mention, of course, the normal Empire-Nazi regime similarities we've seen before, and most directly to Star Wars, the resemblance of the seduction of Galen Erso by Orson Krennic, as detailed in this book, to the seduction of Anakin Skywalker by the Emperor. It's impossible to ignore. A different ending to that seduction here, but you'll see what I mean when you read the book. As a lead-up to Rogue One, Catalyst is far superior than last year's Star Wars Aftermath was in that respect to The Force Awakens. It seems much more connected to the upcoming movie because many of the characters in this book are actually in Rogue One, even if this book doesn't center around the main character of the upcoming movie. Orson Krennic does seem like the movie's main villain, but the protagonist is Jin Erso. Why she very much is in this book, we don't spend time with the character we'll be seeing in Rogue One as she is a baby and then a child during the course of the novel. In addition to Krennic and Jin, Galen and Leo Erso will also be in the movie, and we do get some brief time with Saw Guerrera, who will be played by Academy Award winner Forrest Whitaker in the movie, and as many of you know, Saw was a character seen in the Clone Wars cartoon. Star Wars fan-favorite author James Lucino returns for another novel, and he is always welcome as far as I'm concerned. He has previously written some incredible Star Wars backstory novels, and I'd put Catalyst more in his Tarkin novel area rather than his novels Millennium Falcon and Darth Plagueis. As you would expect, you can tell he has done his homework, clearly well-researched in crystals and construction issues, with sentences full of details and $20 vocabulary words, as well as a few of those awesome Lucino 50-plus word sentences. Mr. Lucino can be quite verbose at times, and sometimes the read was too detailed. There were times when I was sensing I was seeing through the author's layering of mass amounts of details to make up for the lack of plot beats. And as expected from this author, the research shows in so much connective tissue into the Star Wars timeline, as this book reaches back into the prequel movies, the Clone Wars, and after Revenge of the Sith. Plenty of details on starships, the beginning of stormtroopers, the first TIE fighters, and more for those who are into that sort of thing, and all the details weaved into the narrative as the author excels at. So on that level, Mr. Lucino succeeds, as he always does. But the thrust of this novel is all background on the characters, especially Orson Krennic and Galen Erso, and there is no central mystery or page-turning plot-boiler suspense. This is a story of the machinations of Krennic and the lengths he went to to get the materials he needs to build the Death Star and to get his old-school chum Galen Erso, the galaxy's authority on kyber crystal energy, to work on the Death Star's main superweapon laser, much of the time without him even knowing about it. Krennic realizes that Galen is the only one who can conduct the research to make the super laser a reality, and Urso is vehemently against getting involved with anything military. A conscientious objector during the Clone Wars, and then in the Empire's struggle with insurgents across the galaxy, he is all about the research, and how his work can solve the galaxy's energy needs efficiently. Krennic manipulates Galen without him knowing, as well as many others through this book, to make sure his needs and the Emperor's are met in relation to this weapon, and the justification of the Empire's tyranny and need for this super battle station. The author paints quite the picture of the driven methodical Orson Krennic and the meticulous Galen Erso, providing plenty of detailed backstory and character-driven motivational passages, and their struggles together, their history together, their friendship, Krennic's manipulation of that friendship, and Erso's eventual realization of what is actually going on. Yet, surprisingly, 
I don't feel any closer to either of them as a result of this book. In fact, I have the same reaction to the characters while reading and at the end of the book that I did watching the second trailer for Rogue One. Those few seconds of visuals paired with the message of that trailer is the jumping off point, the essence of this whole book. But in 300 plus pages in remarkable detail, creating a definitive backstory to a foregone conclusion, I just wasn't buying in. I felt like I've read this story before told in this sort of way. The old romantic comedy analogy came to mind. You know the two leads will get together at the end, so it's about the journey there and how it's told. And is it entertaining taking that journey? A lot of detail on how Orson Krennic and Galen Erso met, how Lynn Erso and Galen got together, how Orson felt about that relationship at first, and now, Lyra's impressions of Orson and Galen at their first meeting, Galen's need to work and how obsessive he gets when he can't solve a problem, and how that affects his family, his wife, his relationship with his daughter. A whole lot of this stuff that, while certainly gives a life story to all of these characters, it wasn't engaging me. I just wasn't going along with it. It felt superfluous. My favorite character moments are Krennic manipulating Galen, and smuggler Haas Obit, Masamita, and his interactions with Grand Moff Tarkin and Lyra. And they're fun because of the subtext and real meaning underneath what they are actually saying to one another. All those polite pleasantries. Krennic against Lyra Urso, Jin's mother and Galen's wife, is a real highlight of the book, as Lyra is written as a woman of her convictions, who sees through Orson's charming ways and the Empire's excuses for their appropriation of planets and star systems. Lucino does a good job with what I call the Krennic versus scenes, because he has such a talent for taking what could be a simple chapter to get from point A to point B, and crafts it perfectly, utilizing the opportunity to build character moments upon character motivations, interactions, and status. For example, the first scene where smuggler Haas Obit meets Orson Krennic on the Star Destroyer, and how Krennic completely traps the smuggler in his own words, and that Obit has no choice but to work for Krennic by the end of the conversation, revealing the cunning of Krennic, and how he plays people like a chess game, much like the Emperor, Grand Admiral Thrawn, or Grand Moff Tarkin. And while that is an aspect of this character I think many a Star Wars fan will like while they read this book, and I am thankful that he is not another simple-minded Imperial fat cat, he rang familiar, uh, so close to Thrawn and Tarkin to me, but less dynamic. It started to make me wonder why the character of Krennic exists at all if you have a character like Grand Moff Tarkin who could do all of these things that Krennic is doing. Perhaps that answer is in the movie. We'll find out. Lucino once again writes Tarkin well, especially as his obsessive qualities come out at the Battle of Salient 2, and I think this is the best characterization of Masamita I have ever read. You've heard me talk about on these reviews how some books are all plot and light on character, and how some are character studies hanging on a thinner plot, and while I usually love a good character study, here I found I needed more actual plot. The same character beats kept being played, surrounded by incredible world-building details, but I needed more meat! And you've also heard me say some Star Wars books I review are too short, at 250 pages or so, to give me a satisfying story. And here I'd have to say this story could have had the same impact on me if instead of its 330 pages, it were about 70 pages shorter. And I was ready for the climax when it finally arrived. Reading this novel ahead of seeing the movie, do I feel more connected to any of these characters? I mean, I guess so. Regardless of how well this book is written, and the scenarios that are played out in this book, in this reviewer's opinion, this book is not needed to enjoy Rogue One. It is bound to be interesting to Star Wars EU fans to have this, and by all means, if you're interested, you're getting a well-written book by a premier Star Wars author, with characters that you will meet in the movie. But I don't think you need to rush out and read this before seeing the movie. Similarly, I can't say that I am now more excited to see the movie because I have this backstory. 
I love Star Wars, and I, of course, am looking forward to this movie, but I find myself in the exact same place of expectation for the movie where I was before I read Catalyst. Will having read Catalyst first accentuate my Rogue One experience? Doubtful at this point, but I'll let you know for sure after I see the movie December 16th. But I am going to say, if you liked Rogue One, you may get some enjoyment out of reading this backstory to some of the movie's characters afterwards. Star Wars Catalyst, a Rogue One story, is well written, so you won't be disappointed in that regard. But while reading it, I couldn't shake how I felt this book is unnecessary. At the core, what we have here is a familiar Star Wars story told in a recognizable way. Easy to read, but ultimately rang hollow to this reviewer. For Star Wars Action News and the Star Wars Action News Book Club, this is Brock. Now back to Arnie and Marjorie. All right, well, thank you all for joining me. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with most of you because we're going to have a 2016 collecting year in review. Now that Rogue One is behind us, we're going to take a look at all the toys that the year started with The Force Awakening and ended by going rogue. So until next week, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you. Thanks, Arnie. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find pictures of the toys reviewed, chat with other Star Wars collectors, and find hundreds of Star Wars Action News episodes at our website, SWActionNews.com. This podcast is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. We rely on listener support to keep the show going. You can pledge to our Podbean fundraising campaign by going to SWActionNews.com slash support. Backers get rewards including exclusive video content, early show releases, and more. You can also help out our show by telling your friends to listen by posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or in person. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed is at SWActionNews.com. We want your feedback on Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at SWActionNews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at SWActionNews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. The links to our social media sites are at SWActionNews.com. You can also send us your latest store reports, figure reviews, and more. Email us an MP3 or iPhone voice memo at show at SWActionNews.com. All content received is subject for use on the show. If you also enjoy Marvel Comics, you can hear Arnie and Marjorie talk about the toys and statues based on Marvel Comics characters on the Marvelicious Toys podcast at MarveliciousToys.com. Star Wars Action News is always looking for new people to help with the show. You can find a list of skills we need on our blog at VenganzaMedia.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. Video editing by Barrett, Andrew, and Daryl. Website design by Jason. Graphic design by Jay. Photo editing by Scott and Curtis. Announcements by Brock. Segments created by Andrew, Brock, Daryl, Jerry, Jonathan, Nathan, and Steve. For more Star Wars collecting, check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. 
and we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. All rights reserved. Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. Yeah, and the... Uh... And the Bengals are currently beating the Pittsburgh Steelers twenty to twelve, so I might have a lot of hoop and hollering. So I'll, I'll definitely be on mute. I don't. Oh know. God, I thought you were going to talk about the eighties band because you said Bengals, and it didn't yeah, even occur to me you meant thing. football. No, I'm referring to the football Bengals of Cincinnati. Yes, I, I heard Bengals too. By the way, Jerry, your accent's coming out a little bit. <laughs> are you burning on eternal <laughs> flame? I am. My kinfolk are from Kentucky, so I guess it does come out for so often. And kinfolk also good for y'all. Yes, kinfolk. I love kinfolk. That's great. That's how you know it's real. Steve, are you going to serenade us anymore today? Because I hope so. <laughs> I, I have we, a song for every occasion, just not the you, voice to sing it. <laughs> why anybody does what they do? Why is Ray in prison? Why is Ray resisting? Why does Ray? Jin. Jin. <laughs> Ray, Jin. <laughs> why does Jin? To the Jedi Order. Though most scholars believe it to be the other way around is what the visual dictionary says. And I just dropped my mic. Drops a knowledge bomb and drops the mic. I Jerry out. <laughs> Although that time I literally did knock my microphone off the table. <laughs> <laughs>